Hello and welcome to the first season of the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon, based in a Lehigh Valley part of Pennsylvania. I'm a 1997 graduate of the College of New Jersey with a journalism degree who has worked in sports media for 25 years. For the last three months, I have been sending daily journalism salutes on social media, pairing them with donations to a wide range of journalistic organizations. My intent was to counter cries of fake news, lamestream media, and enemy of the people by doing a little of whatever I could each day to help. The next phase of this project is to learn more about the groups that I've been saluting. That's where these interviews come in. Who are these groups? What do they do? What do they do best? And why are they so important to our present and our future? We'll talk to people from a diverse set of organizations to try to learn more. Thank you for joining me. We're going to focus on something different this week. Rather than profiling an organization, we're going to talk to a person I know with an interesting role and skill. Steve Bunin, news anchor at King 5 in Seattle. Steve's from Seattle, but to return home, he had to go by way of Michigan, Arizona, Connecticut, New York, and Texas. Steve spent nine years at ESPN, where he was among the network's most versatile anchors, working on football and baseball shows and SportsCenter, but also ESPN's hard news show, Outside the Lines. I want to mention three other things about Steve. One is that he received the President's Volunteer Service Award from Barack Obama. Two, Steve is former bat boy for the Seattle Mariners. And three, Steve can be counted on every holiday season to buy large quantities of candy as a thank you to the group I worked with, Stats and Information. Hey, Steve, thanks for that. And thanks for joining us. So we get thank the friend. Well, thank, you, thank you for having me. Can I just say really quickly, just for, for us, it's a little inside baseball, but my highlights, first of all, I got the award from Barack Obama. I didn't get to meet the president. They, they give it out to because he's done a lot of time, but I would be thrilled to have said that. I didn't, but I, but I will say the highlight of my time at ESPN, my true highlight was one of your colleagues, Jason McCallum, handing out this sort of like a company award for character, but it's only from employees. It's not because you brown nose some manager. It's, it's a, somebody who really like in the trenches thinks that you're a good person and you do good things. And it was handed around like no anchor, of course, is ever going to get it because anchors are egotistical maniacs and myself kind of included. But Jason, your colleague gave one to me and it was like, mo it was the most beautiful moment of my, of my career. So I just wanted to sort of get that out uh, 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 at the top. We're done with the friendly stuff. Let's get to business. Uh, how are things uh, where you are in Seattle? And just introduce the audience to you and explain who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you so much again for having me. It's an honor to be uh, here. And I'm kind of lowering the bar considering who else you've had on your podcast in terms of their journalism qualifications. But I'm really proud of, of what I've accomplished in my career. So growing up in Seattle, wanted to be a sportscaster my whole life and locked in it to Syracuse University, like in middle school, as the sort of factory for sportscasters with a long list of, of you know, Bob Costas and Marv Albert and Tariq and all these guys. So I went to Syracuse, got a degree in broadcast journalism, and um, and then moved all over the country as a sportscaster, basically, from tiny, tiny towns from Arizona to Michigan, as you mentioned, all over crisscrossing the country, a very non-linear uh, path. It was, it was very up and down, unemployed for times, employed, never making much money. And then I finally got my big break and I got to ESPN, which was amazing. And you're at the sort of epicenter of sports casting and then sports journalism. And what I found was as much as I loved breaking down highlights and fun discussions of uh, different athletes and who's the better quarterback and who's the best tennis player, I love that. But I also found that I had kind of a deeper appreciation and love for the more contextual journalistic conversations about Native American nicknames in sports or why there are more male 
college basketball coaches for women compared to the zero women coaching men think deeper issues and so that got me gravitating towards outside the lines which was sort of our 60 minutes more newsy journalistic show i got to be super involved with that which was amazing and that kind of the planted the seed for me that at some point i would transition to news journalism and uh long story short left espn went to houston and now here i am in seattle where i grew up and i'm really honored to be a news anchor here at one of the stations i grew up watching the nbc affiliate king five here it's a pretty big station here and uh, I, I've been really proud to have done our morning news. Now I anchor our noon newscast, as well as uh, a handful of other things uh, that, that sort of fill up the day to try to play the role of a journalist. And I think it's a crazy time. I mean, I loved being a sportscaster because it was like the, the dessert on the menu. And I also really now like being um, the more the meat and potatoes or, you know, tofu and potatoes if you're vegetarian. And like, I think that there's, a, there's an important place for both. I, I really believe there's an important place for the sports and the outlet of entertainment and acting and Oscars and all that. And I believe that there's a place for the hard news journalism to ask true hard questions of people in power and uh, foundations of power and try to get to the root of things and to tell and storytelling is the sort of line that crosses over both of those. And that's what I try to do. And walk us through uh, the journalistic process of your job on a daily basis. Uh, there are many things that certainly go into putting a newscast together. For sure. So coming in for me, let's say now on my noon show, I have sort of a nine to five-ish type of a day. And I come in and some of the things are we're going to cover are, are set just by schedule, right? The mayor is going to do a, a ribbon you know, cutting ceremony at a new homeless shelter in, in whatever in Seattle. And in Tacoma, there's going to be a protest about civil unrest. And in Olympia, Washington, they're firing the police chief or whatever. So some of these things are set and I'm sort of crafting tiny stories around that. And as the anchor, I'm, I'm not, of course, going to these places. I'm, I'm sort of uh, like, you know, Ron Burgundy throwing it to someone else who's out at the location doing the real quote journalism. And so what I try to do and, and where I try to flex my journalism muscles is more uh, in stories that I'm writing. So if I have a associated press copy of uh, the summary of what President Trump's going to do today, you know, he'll be in Maryland doing XYZ, is trying to uh, make sure that I'm telling as much of the truth as I, as I can, whether it's a claim that can be sort of you know, verified or, 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 or tweaked to, re to reflect more of the truth, uh, something like that. Uh, if it adds something, uh, there's a flood in Houston, I can add a little personal flavor. Okay, I used to live in Houston. I know this area is a flood zone so that our viewers in Seattle can have a little bit of a stronger connection. Um, and those would be just, just a few examples of what I do on a, on a daily basis in a minute by minute. So just yesterday, we had a semi-truck that drove almost all the way off of a highway. It was like out of a Keanu Reeves movie or, or something where it's hanging on by its back tires and the rest of it is literally hanging off of the highway. So that happens right before the show goes on the air. And then, so the, then it's more the journalistic muscles of, of broadcasting, of getting it on the air, being able to use Twitter and uh, or Facebook or Instagram to relay information that's coming in really quickly to the audience via TV or if they're watching on the app on their, on their phone and getting that information out there in a way that is um, you know cogent and accurate and responsible and um, telling the dramatics as well. For a 21st century news program, who are the different people that you interface with on a daily basis? Whew, great question. Um, so a lot of these would be um, well, our, my own colleagues, frankly, producers, directors, and reporters at, at our station, and depending on their wealth of uh, experience and knowledge and expertise, uh, because as the anchor, I'm not out as much in the studio. So for instance, the first three years I was here, once or twice a week, I'd be out 
meeting people doing different feature stories and I'm in, the, in different communities. And that, that would be everyone from someone who runs a homeless clinic to a former uh, athlete who is doing great work in the inner city to uh, a school program uh, to try to get um, inner city kids into, into colleges. Um, so that would be somewhat, you know, when I'm doing more reporting, those are the people I'm, I'm interacting with. As an anchor, it's much more via computer. So then it's, it's frankly mostly via Twitter uh, or any other social media accounts, whether it's breaking news or someone tweets something that I know um, is going to affect us about the Pac-12. That's a big thing right now, whether they're going to start playing football and the meetings. And so for me as a news anchor, my background being in sports, I have probably a stronger tie to contacts who will be able to give uh, reliable news there compared to maybe some of my colleagues who just don't have a sports background. And so they might have better contacts in education, but I have a better contact when it comes to uh, sports playing during a pandemic. You've done TV news and sports anchoring through essentially the lifetime of the internet, you and I being about the same age. Um, you graduated Syracuse in 1996, so you were in school when it began. How has the internet changed the role of the TV news anchor over time? Oh my gosh, in a huge way. I remember in college, they, we had computer clusters, which you're younger. Uh, no idea. You used to go and wait in line and there'd be like 24 computers where you could log in and use Netscape Navigator and you'd wait two hours to use the computer for 10 minutes, right? This is really dating both of us. Um, and, and it just is, I'll tell you, even being at ESPN, I remember when, when Twitter kind of came out. So I was there from 2003 to 2012. And maybe in the middle point of that, right, late 2079, Twitter comes out. And for a while, there was an edict that we were not allowed to tweet during a show because we would be being distracted from what we're doing. And then it has switched, obviously, now. I mean, people are tweeting, live tweeting during a show, or at least between commercial breaks to not only show people what it's like behind the scenes, but um, to, to just give more information. Hey, we just got this news, and we're in our two-minute commercial break. Or the way that even ESPN, for instance, or CNN doesn't even go to a full commercial break, but they show a commercial on half of the screen and they're still showing you behind the scenes so that would be one way in in television that it's presented differently and then just in terms of um acquiring knowledge i remember one of my first tv stations in flagstaff arizona we had one computer for all 15 of us in the station and it, it had this slow dial-up internet you know and you'd have to wait so the weather the weather meteorologist he had first dibs on it and he was done with it the news crew had it and then i had sort of like third shift and I'm trying to find out the scores of games. It just, you didn't, you didn't have that capability. Now on a Friday night for high school football, to go back to sports, but, but on, for politics, it, you can instantaneously have the knowledge, right, with a tweet or, or a text. Uh, that has changed it dramatically, whether it's breaking news for sports, weather with tornadoes. You know, no longer are people waiting till 11 o'clock at night to see what's going to happen with the weather the next morning. Everyone wakes up. What's the first thing you do? You turn on your phone, you know, probably before you even kiss your loved one next to you, if you're so lucky, you turn on the phone and see what happened, whether you're checking the traffic because you're driving to work or the weather or the sports score or whatever, you've got it on your phone. And that changes how we have to broadcast um, and which includes, let's say, a verify segment that I do where we're trying to verify a claim that a politician has made or that some is going viral on Facebook about vaccines. You know, it, it starts on social media, which didn't exist in the 1990s. And now we verify it in a way that will play probably better to an audience watching on its phone than that is watching necessarily on a TV screen. So it's, it's just changed in so many ways, it's hard to even um, list it. Walk us through the verify uh, segments that you do, because there is a, certainly a journalistic component to this. So I presume that there's a, a decent amount of work that goes into what you're doing there. Just explain it. Yeah. 
yeah, so this is a real heavy lifting kind of thing. And I, and I love that about it. I would call it true journalism. Um, it started with a colleague uh, who works at a sister station of ours in Charlotte. And I think it was born, I don't know for a fact, but I think it was born out of this world we're living in now that has been frankly fanned by the president and, and others, but uh, with the, the inauguration where there's a claim that, you know, I had this many people in my audience and then the you know, you can sort of show the two pictures that show that that really is not true. It doesn't compare. And to verify that and that you have now tons of claims on, frankly, Facebook for the most part, others as well, but mostly Facebook, that you, it's just hard to verify whether that's true or not. And people now have a larger distrust of news, which I find very sad and very scary. And so one way to kind of try to plow through that is to do a segment that is done in a way that's a little more 21st century, a little more, you might call it YouTube-ish, where there are different graphics and it's spelling out the words that I'm saying. And, you know, a, a cynic might say it's kind of dumbing it down a little bit. But what I would try to say or counter that is, is to, to say that it's trying to present it in a very clear way, you know. So I'll, tell, I'll just give an example, the one we we're working on this week. And so we do about one of these a week. So uh, this was a governor candidate here in the state of Washington who claims that mask mandates from our governor and others go against our state constitution. The constitution in Washington state says freedom of, of people to do whatever they want. So, okay, it's, maybe it's crazy. Maybe it's true. You know, let's talk to a constitution. So what we do is the verified part of it is try to get two or three sources and then we show the sources during the piece so that the viewer sees, okay, here is the actual Washington state constitution. We're showing it to you. Here's the article in question, article one, section seven, blah, blah, blah. Here's the statue that gives the governor, like, how does a governor have any right? Governor can do whatever he wants. No, the governor has a statute that says article 37.94, in a state of emergency, this can happen ABC. All right, now let's just talk to an expert. So we go to the major university here, University of Washington, talk to the person who teaches state constitutional law, right? Unbiased, but just his whole life is based upon teaching this. Ask him what the deal is. And in this case, it, it happens that this is just a complete misunderstanding of the Constitution. And the uh, sort of uh, money line that he used was just because you you can't just because you have the freedom to do what you want doesn't mean you can run up to someone and punch them in the face. Why? Because it endangers someone else. And that's not part of a personal freedom. And so the governor can, through various venues, determine that breathing on someone in a pandemic can endanger them. And therefore, he can issue restrictions that might allow that. So people can yell and scream about what they want, but is it constitution? Is it against the state constitution? No. So we can verify no. So that's sort of just taking people through the process of us as journalists. How do we do it? How do they know to trust us? Are we just some left-wing West Coast, you know, journalism that, no, this is just going, and if the state constitution had borne it out otherwise, we would do the verify that say, yes, this does go against the constitution. The governor now has to answer. And that would be one example. And we did it for herd immunity with the coronavirus. Is that something we should go for? Scientists agree, no. Ethically, no. Scientifically, no. Biologically, no. That's not how the virus uh, works unless you are willing to live with, you know, 2 billion people dying. So I, I like this um, ability to try to cut through the noise in a way that doesn't really lend itself to partisan one side or the other. It really is based on facts. And that goes to, to more than just your station, right? Yeah. So then we'll put it out on our TV station, but we put it out obviously on our website as well. And it goes on our YouTube page and then it'll go to our 20 or so sister stations and they can use it if they want. So they will probably wouldn't use the local one because it doesn't affect them with our governor, but they might, and they have used the herd, herd immunity, immunity because a lot yeah. of people are wondering about that. Like, why can't we just 
let everyone get sick. You know, like, yes, some people are going to die and it sucks, but statistically that's going to happen anyway. You know, why can't we do that? And so we attacked that question. We talked to a pandemic expert, a global expert, not just some, you know, Yahoo who, who has a Facebook degree, but someone who has spent their life literally studying like a Dr. Fauci type person and get the, the actual response. And then ideally, yeah, it goes to a wider audience and hopefully people share it on Facebook. And then it becomes something that helps people make their own decisions, however their political leanings are based on just the facts of the argument. We've done print journalism for the most part in the first six episodes of this podcast, but I think that shows the power of the image and the power of the voice uh, behind things, uh, certainly. So with that, uh, journalism coach John Sawatsky once asked a, a group of ESPN staffers to name the network's best question asker, and John said it was Steve Bunin. So this Aww. makes Steve the perfect person to ask, what are the things that journalists should do to conduct a good interview? Ah, uh, great question. So yeah, John was an amazing mentor to me and a lot of other people at ESPN. And just so people know who he was, he's a longtime journalist in Canada who transitioned into someone who really studied and kind of became a PhD, um, um, Dr. Fauci level type of person for interviews. And, um, and it's hard to boil down because he does these week long seminars into a, a little soundbite. But um, one of the basic things is to ask open ended questions, which would to just to be an example would be, um, you know, what did you mean when you said this? Or how do you feel when you won the Oscar? Instead of a more closed question, which is, it must have been amazing when you won the Oscar, right? Which sort of fo fo forces your respondent into either defending or diminishing the you know, exclamation point that you put onto it. So to ask him more what he would call an open, an open, lean, and neutral question. Lean meaning fewer words. A lot of journalists try to, and I did it too, you try to kind of show how smart you are by saying 45 words before you ask a question. And it's like, the interview is not about you. The interview is about them. They're the expert or they're the person who is involved in the situation. So as a journalist, it's important, I think, to remember that. So a, a short question is usually better. Open-ended, which again, uh, you know, paraphrasing is kind of like the what question. What happened? How come? Why? And, uh, and neutral, so that you're not leaning one way or, or, or the other, because it's a very natural, as he explained, human reaction to, um, to balance things out. So if I say, Mark, this podcast is probably the best one you've ever had, you're just more likely to say, you know what, Steve, I've done a bunch. It's good. It's, it's, it's really great. I, I, can't, I don't know if it's the best. And vice versa, if I say, Mark, I, this feels boring. This is the worst one you've had. You're going to say, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, you're actually, you, you've done some great stuff. Be, so instead, the better question is, Mark, how, what do you think of this podcast? Or how does this podcast compare to the others? And it just, it, those are some basics as a journalist, whether you're in a small market, a print journalist, a TV journalist, or a radio journalist, those things can work for you. Now, there are a lot of corollaries that come with it, right? If you only have a two minute to do a, an interview with a governor, you, you can't just necessarily ask an open-ended question and let them go for a minute 59, and then you don't get a chance to follow up. So there are caveats to it. But, but in general, those are sort of the guidelines. And they've really guided me and taken me, I think, to a new level in how I can do a breaking news um, with a, a Washington State trooper yesterday with a semi-truck that's falling off the road. I'm using the same tools that John taught me that I used when I interviewed Joe Montana about his career in a, or Justin Timberlake about a golf movie he did with Mike Myers. It's the same exact format, even though all those people represent totally different things. And it's been a, a guiding force through my career. And I, I would highly encourage uh, 
uh, journalists to try to try to follow just those basics of a who, what, when, where, why, and ask it in as concise a manner as possible. And I would leave you with this in terms of, of John. One of the great lessons he said, he would ask all of us in these seminars, who's the best interviewer? And so, you know, I think Oprah, I think Larry King, I think, uh, you know, 60 Minutes, I think Fox. And he would say, nope, the answer is a three-year-old. And he goes, what? He goes, what does a three-year-old do? Why? How come? This, you know, why? How come? Well, because the sky is blue. Why? Because the water flux off the water. Why? Because, and, and you get frustrated as a parent. You're like, bah! And he said, that's it. Because that's what you want as an interviewer. If, if you're trying to sort of get a gotcha moment or just trying to find out something, simple questions like that really redirect an athlete, a politician to get to their answer. We need masks. Why? To save people. Why? Because we can't ethically let, let them die. Why? Because the virus does not. Just a simple question like that can really take you a long way and end up making you look a little more powerful than the journalists who will just go on and on for six minutes before they finally ask a question. What's your most memorable question uh, that you got answered? So that's a great question. Open-ended. Um, kind of, I got to sift through a long history of questions that I've asked. Um, I'll tell you this. One of the ones that got me a lot of, uh, 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 a lot of mileage out of it. So this is probably 2000, I want to say five to 2008 at ESPN. I had been, signed the show called the, the hot list which was essentially an interview show in the afternoons and you would in in a half hour you have basically three segments about seven minutes each and you do these seven minute interviews and sometimes they were with lebron james and peyton manning and sometimes it was with a nascar driver or a hot rod racer where they you know the the cars that are super long and have a parachute out the back people that no one's heard of and it was a huge amount of work trying to, to interview over three hours like i think it's 12 people per day Every day, it's 60 hours, 60 interviews a week. It was just so much. I ended up taking John's course and he just really helped me find the ability to ask the quick questions. So one of the questions that I would do, I would say, what's on your iPod? This is when iPods were kind of new. And, and what, what the reason is, and again, this is getting a little in the weeds, but like, so an athlete, for instance, who's sitting there doing a satellite interview with nine different people promoting a toothpaste, you know, LeBron James, let's say, and, and so he's going to do an interview with ESPN and CNN and Fox and the St. Louis affiliate and the NBC affiliate and the Cleveland, and, did, and he, he's doing 10 of them. And a lot of the questions are going to be the same. You know, how's your season going? What do you think is the key to your success? So asking a question that's a little out of left field ended up, it, it sort of jolts them and it puts them in a whole different place. And so uh, he, he'd be like, so I remember with LeBron and said, he said, oh, uh, I'm iPod, I don't know, Jay-Z. And he, he starts to laugh and you can see in his uh, face he starts to smile and relax and now I have a whole different avenue and in fact I use it to this day every week on Friday I interview Chuck Todd the host of Meet the Press on NBC and I know what he's doing he's sitting there in a studio and he's doing about 10 of these different affiliates and the questions are 80% the same a little bit local but basically what did the president say what did McConnell do what did Schumer do what did Pelosi do what's going on with the riots and and he's kind of answering the same questions questions over and over again. So I just made it a point. I've got three minutes with him that the last question is always going to be something kind of fun. So the first time out of the gate, Hey, you're from Miami. What do you think of the hurricanes football team? And he kind of, like, Oh, uh, <laughs> I love the hurricanes. Da, da, da. So then it, then it became, he'd be, he's a Washington nationals fan because he lives in DC. He's got a teenage son who loves the team. So is there getting in the world series? So I'm asking him serious questions about politics for two and a half minutes, but the last 30 seconds is fun. And I can tell when he's now, you know, doing our interviews, he's totally loosened up. He's in a different mindset. And it's, it's, it's maybe not one memorable question per se that you asked, but it's a way that I've been able to ask a lot of questions that get memorable answers that otherwise would not happen with, with different 
different journalists. All right, let's go to the pay it forward aspect of this. You already gave tips for uh, aspiring journalists, so we've got that that we can check off. Uh, who are the journalists that you most like to watch or read? Oh, great question, man. So many of them. Bob Costas is probably the first that comes to mind, a Syracuse guy who does it all, every sport, hosting, play-by-play, Olympics. So he, he, he was probably my, is my broadcasting idol and getting to meet him, interview him on Outside the Lines was amazing and meet him in person a couple of times. And he's versatile too. Totally versatile and did it, did it a nightly talk show that had nothing to do with sport. Uh, which is something that I w- would love to do at some point and, and, and kind of got to do a little bit when I was in Houston. I certainly a- admired uh, him and Al Michaels, Mike Tirico, uh, Reese Davis at ESPN, people who are versatile. And I think, I guess, because that's the quality that I like to think that I have. Um, it's, it's fantastic if you can be a superstar in a, in a certain uh, field, a political expert, a scientific expert. But I think just in life, I enjoy hanging out with people and interviewing and talking to people who have a diversity of approach. And so I think that's who appeals to me in terms of, of journalism. So uh, similarly, journalists, you know, Anderson Cooper would just be a guy that pops into my head. Dan, Dan Rather is, is certainly another. People who have done a variety of things live, overseas, uh, at a flood, JFK assassination, but also in an anchor desk can do that or the, or the breaking news of a 9-11. You know, how do you do that and not just cry at times because you're a human and, 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 on the, and how do you be, not be just a robot and just be reciting news when you're seeing people die in front of you? Those are the kind of people that I have admired in the past and continue to watch and love and try to learn from uh, today. Last question, uh, pay it forward again. Uh, recommend another journalism organization or recommend in this case, a journalism organization that you would like to salute. What I would say is everybody's local newspaper. So my first job was a newspaper delivery boy when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old on my bicycle, you know, biking around. And I delivered, I must've been four different newspapers by the time I was done being a teenager. And there, you know, it's unfortunately in ways it's a dying industry because of computers and because people don't wait around for the morning news anymore. And I know I do. And I think people 40 and up have this sort of love affair with newspapers. And we all like to have that feeling in our hand or, or you're reading it over your coffee or whatever in the morning. But I also know that 40 and below, because we'll have you know, lunches and friend, dinner with friends and I ask them, the teenagers, they, they don't, have, newspapers not even in there. It'd be like you and me reading a, a, a telegraph. It's just not, <laughs> we never, we never consider it, right? And, and why? Because it's much quicker on the phone. But I, but I think that there's a role that local newspapers play and whether you are reading the newspaper in a physical uh, paper or you're reading the local newspaper on your phone they play a role that cannot be duplicated by the number one network reporter or anchor anywhere you know when when lester holt flies to um you know west texas because there's a school shooting he can do some great things but the local newspaper who knows all those teachers and all those principals and those students and those parents and those you know you know clubs they can tell that story in a different and better way and and can put you on the spot there and so that so one of the things that i do that i'm really proud of here in seattle is a segment i call above the fold which is to feature three local newspapers out of about 60 that i that i have on my on my list uh in western washington alone and i try to highlight sometimes they're sad stories sometimes they're beautiful stories sometimes they're uplifting stories sometimes they're weird stories but they can help tell the stories of a long range, literally a geographic range from the Canada, because we border Canada to the north, to Oregon, to the south. It's about 
five, five hours to drive between the two. And I can tell what's happening or tell our viewers what's happening in all these different communities, give the newspapers a bigger and different platform that they have, shine a light on the work that they do that we can't do. We have probably a hundred, I don't know, a hundred employees or so in King Five in our news department. We just can't cover every city every single day. It's, impo it's physically impossible, but we can kind of work together and, and, and I think newspapers just play this role. And, and, new, and the, the local newspaper two hours away can't cover the Seattle mayor. They just, it's, not, it's physically not possible or worth it for them to have their reporter drive all the way to Seattle to tell a story that the Seattle Times, the major newspaper here, can tell. And so what I would say is the most important thing to support with a subscription, if, if you can, it's often pretty cheap, 15 bucks for a year or something, 30 bucks for a year. And I know not everyone can afford something, but if you can afford anything like that, that's such a valuable use of your resources for what they mean to your local community. When you need someone to answer to the politicians or find out why the streetlight isn't working or when the community pool is going to open or why there's not a new middle school because your middle school has 60 kids per class. All of those questions can best be answered by local newspaper journalists. And I would want to go to the mat supporting them until the end of time. Steve Bunin, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's been an honor. We're going to do this from time to time here, mix it up a little, and feature people I know as guests. We'll call it the personal salute. I want this show as versatile as Steve Bunin is. He's doing important work in his way, just as those doing statehouse reporting or investigative journalism are doing important work in their way. The journalism salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole. In 33 years as a journalism professor at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, Dr. Cole impacted hundreds of future journalists. Dr. Cole was versatile, too. He taught news writing, sports writing, editing, press history, press law, and his passion project, Literature of the South. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. If you're interested in following along with us, follow us on Twitter at Journalism Salute, S-A-L-U-T. There are more episodes to come. Thank you for tuning in.